hooked up. If you've got your Bible with you, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. I hope that, um, I hope that you've been encouraged by this glorious presentation of Jesus that we find in the book of Hebrews. We've begun, uh, we've done two sermons in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to continue all all through the rest of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Remember that the Hebrew Christians were we're being persecuted, we're, we're suffering for their faith in, in Jesus by, by both their Jewish kinsmen who were trying to get them to go back to Judaism, back to the law, but also the Roman authorities by this time. Um, Judaism was a legal religion, the Roman Empire, so if they went back to Judaism, it would take the pressure off of the persecution that was happening to them. Uh, but the reality is that following Jesus for these Hebrew Christians had made their lives more difficult. Their lives were filled with hardship and pain and suffering. And all they had to do to make life better was just ease off on all this Jesus talk, you know? Stop being so radical about this gospel and living for Jesus. Just ease back, fade back into the practice that you've known all of your life, the old covenant religion. The book, Hebrews, began... By saying, God has spoken to us in these last days by his son. It began saying, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. And then later in chapter one, we looked at last week, it said, he, he is, Jesus is the eternal creator, the victorious king seated on his throne. And the theme of Hebrews all the way through is Jesus is better. The word used in your translation is probably superior, but it's over and over again. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels we saw in chapter one. He's better than Moses, better than the temple, better than the priests and the sacrifices. Throughout this book, there's going to be a continual refrain. Don't turn away from Jesus. He is better. Don't forsake him for anything else, not this world, not old religion, not anything, because Jesus is better. There's nothing to go back to. Jesus has fulfilled it all. Hold fast to Christ. We're going to hear it over and over and over again, the book of Hebrews, for he is all in all. Today in chapter 2, we come to the first of five severe warnings in the book of Hebrews. And frankly, they're, they're kind of scary. The book of Hebrews is not just a theological presentation. I mean, it is that, but it's a sermon, an exhortation. It's a call to action. And this first warning in chapter 2 is not so much about defiantly turning away from Christ. It's a warning about drifting away. So remember, all of chapter 1 said Jesus is better than the angels, the the heavenly messengers of God. We saw last week that angels attended and ordained the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. So in chapter 1, the writer gives us this big argument. It was seven Old Testament quotations we walked through last week showing that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is greater than the angels. And after that long argument, the writer comes to the application for us. Okay, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the messengers of God in the message that he brings. So here is the point. He begins in chapter 2, verse 1. 
Therefore, because Jesus is better than the angels, because all of these Old Testament quotations show us Jesus is greater than the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the law there, the giving of the law, and this is how we know that because he says every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Since that message declared by angels proved to be reliable, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this text this morning. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would give us um, just a heart that's ready to hear what you have to say through this text. God, I pray that only what you desire to be said gets said from this pulpit and that you would um, just prepare us to receive your word, what you're going to do here. Not what I think, not what I say, but what you're going to do in our hearts through this. God, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the argument goes like this from all of chapter 1 to these first first four verses in chapter 2. Since Jesus is God's final definitive word, In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Since he is a higher authority than the angels who were messengers of God's word to Moses and to Old Testament Israel. Since that is true, Jesus is better. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. He gives this warning to avoid drifting. The writer is warning, writer of Hebrews is warning us here. It's it's not about an intentional drift determined departure from Christ, but a gradual drifting from Christ just due to carelessness and neglect. In fact, he'll use that word, neglect, this salvation in in verse 3. The word is the word translated translated drifting. It, it, I mean, it's it's often used in nautical terms for a boat that's just gradually slipping away from its anchor, slowly being carried out by the current. What's in view here is a gradual movement away from the anchor in Christ, away from the gospel, away from the gospel as sufficient for all things. Now, we know these Hebrew Christians were being pressured and and persecuted and they they were suffering hardship and all these things and they were being pressured to renounce the gospel. And this pressure, it was constant. It wasn't just a Roman sword to your throat saying, deny Jesus or die. I mean, that did happen, of course, but it wasn't just that every single day of their life. It was just this constant drip, drip, drip of hardship and suffering and trial and being shamed and being ostracized. And they were ostracized from their Jewish community, from their synagogues, from their family, from their friends. It was just this continual, repetitive, exhausting life as they endured constant ridicule and shame and mistreatment, which never let up day after day after day after day, year after year. It was like a constant undercurrent, a constant pull just to compromise in small little ways in how they lived and how they walked, a little here and just a little there. The everyday pressure wasn't just a temptation to deny Jesus outright. It was just 
just compromise just a little bit so you can just avoid another day of suffering. These Christians were swimming upstream in a current that was heading the other direction and all day, every day, it was pushing against them. Go back, go back. Their Jewish family and friends and kinsmen would be adding to the pressure, saying, this is what you're supposed to do, go back. You can still love God and still follow God without Jesus being the center of everything. Our people have done so for millennia. Just go offer the sacrifice, man. It's not going to hurt you. Go to the synagogue. Go back to keeping the laws. They're, they're in the scriptures. Go back to keeping the customs. I mean, it'll just take the pressure off you for just a little while. Don't go meet with that little house church anymore. Save yourself from the consequences of that, from the pain that that's going to cause you. You know, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do in order to survive. The issue, this issue, it wasn't theological primarily for them, these Christians. These were real people who were really suffering day in and day out. And many were drifting from Christ, ignoring and neglecting Christ just to have some rest from the hardship that they were facing. This this kind of drifting, it happens to us so easily as well. There's an undercurrent in this present evil age as well as in our own flesh. Just this constant tug pulling us away from our anchor. The pull of sin is always there in our flesh and in this world. Most of the time, we don't just outright deny Christ and become atheists. No, it's, it's the temptation to just, just indulge our sin, to neglect our walk with Jesus Christ, to go back to trusting in our own lifeless religion, our own works, our own goodness. You know, it's, it's okay if, if I, you know, have to, if I have to swerve from Jesus' command and, and indulge in this sin because I'm doing good stuff as well. Those who are drifting, most of the time, they still believe and still profess all the biblical truth, but they neglect actually pursuing Christ in their life. They're not passionate about following Christ. Let's just go through the motions. Let's do the religious thing. And it always begins with a tiny little compromise, a tiny drift. It's all too easy to let the busyness of life cause us to drift and neglect pursuing Christ, following after Christ. We can also let the familiarity with the gospel and with biblical truth to cause us to drift. You know, we're so familiar with the Bible and Christian truth that we don't pursue him in our hearts anymore. I've heard all that before. I've heard all those stories. I know more about my Bible than most people. And we're not pursuing him. We let the deceitfulness of sin cause us to drift. We say, you know, I know that isn't right, but it's just a small little thing. I I have to do what I have to do in order to survive here. It's all too easy to drift as we're pulled along by the undercurrent of our hearts and the world, which never lets up. 
But there is a remedy for this drifting. The writer tells us in this, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. He's screaming, wake up! Pay attention! Don't take this gospel for granted. Keep your mind focused on your anchor. Keep your heart pursuing Christ. Keep the gospel ever before you. Find your identity in the gospel, in Christ. Walk in it, live in it. I remember taking a youth group to Panama City Beach for a camp one time. And they all wanted to play in the ocean. You know, West Tennessee, there aren't any oceans. I guess there aren't any in Kansas either, but they wanted to play in the ocean. Now, I kind of grew up around the, the Gulf of Mexico, so I knew something they didn't know. None of them understood what an undercurrent is. No, so you could be standing in just waist-deep water, playing, talking, having a good time on a normal day in normal weather, and this undercurrent would just move you around without you noticing it. So a, a small group of kids that were playing, just goofing off in the water together, the undercurrent pulled them out so far that they couldn't get back. I ended up having to go out, swim out there, and get them, and I'm not a very good swimmer. So from that moment... I stationed all the adults that were on the trip between the kids and the open ocean. And I pointed to a spot on the beach and I told the adults, you keep yourself in front of that spot right there. Then I pointed to a buoy that was out in the water and I said, you keep yourself behind that buoy. And we literally spent the whole trip yelling at the kids, go back, get back that way. Go this way. You're drifting left. Go back this way. We spent the whole... It was tiring. They got so tired of it. And I got tired of yelling too. It's like, this is my time at the beach. Just yelling. Go back. Get back. But the undercurrent was so subtle and so constant that if someone wasn't there watching, they would have ended up two miles down the beach or even worse, out to sea somewhere. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. After this long argument in chapter 1 where he presented the glories of Jesus and Jesus is better than the angels, he says, because this is true, pay attention. I know that you already know all these things, but pay attention to what you've heard. Pay attention to where your feet are actually standing. Pay attention to what direction that you're actually walking in. Pay attention to what your heart is chasing after. Pay closer attention to where your heart is. Go back. Go back to your anchor. Keep your whole life centered on Christ, treasuring Him above all things, this great salvation. Don't drift from your hope and your passion for the gospel. Walk in it. Live in it. Make it who you are. Find your identity there and nowhere else. There's no other option to have assurance of salvation and to walk rightly before God than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't drift away. Peace in this world is not worth trading Christ for. And make sure you notice, this is a warning to every single one of us. The writer of Hebrews includes himself. Did you notice? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. 
The person who thinks that they're immune to drifting is the one who's going to find themselves in unknown waters the quickest. You've probably, I would bet 99% of the people in this room have probably never heard the name Dr. Art Azurdia. Arturo Azurdia is his name. But in some circles, he's very, very well known. This guy was an extraordinarily great preacher. Very powerful in every way. I mean, in addition to being a pastor, he's also a professor at a seminary on the West Coast. And his sermons, his sermons are a master class in preaching. He did a sermon series on Hebrews at his church at some point a long time ago in the past. And those sermons are incredible. Moving and inspiring, exegetical, faithful, powerful. They're some of the best sermons that you will ever hear on this book. The sermon he preached on this text about drifting was particularly powerful. He talked about the ways that we, we drift and the ways to keep from drifting. He magnified Christ so eloquently and so vividly showing that Jesus is the only anchor for our soul. This week in preparation for today, I went back and I listened to that sermon again. It is just as powerful and as moving as I remember it. He gave examples of how you know that you're drifting, how drifting, you know that it's already happening. He said things like, if you engage in impure thoughts with no conviction, you know, you know that you're drifting. When you don't spend time with Christ in prayer, uh, just time in his presence, and it, it's not a big deal for you, not important to you, you know you're drifting. You know, when, you, when following Christ is just no longer your passion, you're drifting. He gave all these examples. And he said in all of his years of ministry, he didn't know of a single person who just decided one day to turn from Jesus. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, today I'm just going to reject him. Every single person begins by drifting slowly and imperceptibly. As I listened to this sermon again this week, I was reminded of just how powerful it was in my life. The only problem is that I knew something when I listened to it this time that I didn't know years ago when I listened to it. In 2018, it came to light that this master preacher had been having immoral sexual relationships with some of his female students at the seminary. So as I listened this week to this recording of this man thunder from the pulpit about not drifting from Christ, not allowing yourself to be moved from the anchor of our salvation Everything he said was just what I remembered the first time years and years ago I heard it. It was just as powerful, just as true. But as he spoke in my ears, I was listening to MP3 of it. I also knew that as he was preaching from the pulpit about not drifting, he himself was succumbing to the very thing he was powerfully preaching against. Oh, drifting can happen to any of us. Don't put your hope in any person or anything, least of all, your own hearts and your own strength. Jesus is the only anchor of our soul. And the word of God seen through the gospel must be the only plumb line for all that we do. Oh, church, pay closer attention to what you have heard. This warning is deadly serious 
And it is urgent. He tells us the urgency to avoid this drifting in verse 2. The writer's not playing around as he gives this first warning in the book of Hebrews. It's a matter of life and death. To hold fast to that anchor is the most urgent and pressing thing in the universe. He says, pay attention to the word you heard because, for, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, when he says the message declared by angels, he's referring, again, to the law of Moses, the old covenant law. We saw last week in the sermon that both Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and Paul in Galatians chapter 3 say that angels were present and attendant in giving of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. I want to make sure that you see this, though. The writer of Hebrews is not disparaging the law. He's not saying, well, the laws, you know, it's fallible and it's unreliable and it's not a big... No, he's saying just the opposite. He says, since that message, the law of the old covenant, proved to be reliable. He says, it proved to be reliable because every transgression received retribution. If it proved to be reliable, if that message proved to be reliable, how can we escape if we neglect the word that we heard, this great salvation? The message of the law is reliable because every breach of the law, every transgression or crossing of God's boundary received retribution. And he says it wasn't unfair either. It was a just retribution. You take a stroll back through the Old Testament, you'll see that when God's law was broken, there were strict and swift punishments that followed. For major offenses, the law often prescribed the death penalty. For lesser offenses, they required restitution, required sacrifice be made. There were several instances where God himself enacted judgment. In number 16, three people rebelled against Moses and they were swallowed up into the earth. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were priests, they were consumed by fire from the altar because they offered unauthorized incense on the altar. A man named Uzzah was struck dead on the spot because he put out his hand and touched the Ark of the Covenant trying to put it back up on the ox cart. God has never taken sin lightly. But often we think, you know, this law of God, that's just all back then when God was a wrathful God. You know, now in the New Testament, he's all love and grace and all that stuff. We don't have to worry about those kind of things. No, he was a God of love and grace back in the Old Testament as well. And he's the same God of wrath and justice now. Revelation 6.16, the people call for rocks and mountains to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So Hebrews says, if God's law, if this message spoken through these lesser mediators, angels, is so enforced, how in the world do you think that you can survive the judgment if you reject the only salvation, the only sacrifice that can cleanse you and free you from that penalty? How can you think that the promise of salvation in God's own Son can be neglected and there be no consequences? There is no escape from the judgment if we neglect to take hold of the only salvation God has offered us. This is it. In these last days, chapter 1, verse 1, God has spoken to us by His Son. 
Don't neglect this great salvation. This is not a mundane doctrine. It's not a routine or run-of-the-mill salvation. In Christ, God has redeemed us from slavery to sin. He's wiped clean the stain of guilt. And He has removed all condemnation for sin in Jesus Christ. You should be amazed at the glory of Jesus Christ and the grace of this great salvation that we've been given. And if you ever find yourself getting used to it, find yourself not stirred anymore by the fact that Jesus gave his life to save me and now all of my sin is washed away in him. If you ever find yourself not inspired in awe and wonder of this great salvation that we've been given, you're drifting. Pay attention to what you've heard. Repent and turn back. How can you escape if you neglect this? Now, all through the warning passages of Hebrews, there's five of them, we're going to continually be confronted with this question. What about eternal security? Can a true born-again believer drift from Christ and be eternally lost? Short answer to the question, no. But that doesn't mean that this warning isn't real, and it doesn't mean that this warning doesn't apply to you. There are many who give a profession of faith in Jesus who truly believe themselves to be Christians but have never been born again at all. And eternal security, the, the biblical doctrine of eternal security is really a coin with two sides. On one side, the Lord keeps all those that are His. That is an unalterable fact. I'll die on that hill every single time. Salvation is a secure gift. And when a sinner is declared justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can undo what God has done. But on the other side of that coin, eternal security is also that those who are born again will persevere in their faith all the way to the end. We saw this when we looked at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, during our Connect sermon a few weeks ago. It says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let me remind you quickly of the grammar here. You're already a sharer in Christ. We have come. It's already yours. You're already in possession of it. You are already a sheriff in Christ right now. And the evidence that you have already have, you already have a share in Christ is that you will hold your original confidence firm to the end. Can we stray? Of course we can. Do we sin? Do we drift? Absolutely. Most certainly we do. But the Spirit of God draws us back to the truth and one of the ways the Spirit does this is by warnings just like this in Hebrews. This book isn't just a letter, it's a sermon. He calls it a word of exhortation in chapter 13. And just like any congregation listening to a sermon, some people reading this are lost, some people reading this are saved. We don't know who is who, so we present the truth of the word and we warn of the danger of turning from it. Preachers must comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, calling everyone to examine themselves. This is an urgent warning that all of us, all of us must heed. This warning isn't designed to rob you of your hope or rob you of your assurance. It's meant to steer the true believer away from the danger in order to preserve them. Heed this warning. Don't dismiss it. 
It's for you. We must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift from it. The gospel that we have heard, it's reliable and it's trustworthy. He shows us this fact by giving us the reasons to avoid this drifting. Second part of uh, verse 3 says this, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed among, according to His will. He gives us really here three, you might say four if you split up the last one, proofs. Or, or validations that the gospel word, this great salvation is reliable and it's God-ordained. The first proof is that this message was declared first by the Lord himself. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, from his own lips declared this word, this salvation. In verse 2, he told us that the message declared by angels proved to be reliable then how much more this message which was declared by the Lord himself. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and brought the gospel to us himself, first in word, and then he accomplished it at the cross and the resurrection. If this message declared, if the message declared by angels, by God through angels was reliable, how much more the word we have from the eternal creator himself. Jesus declared it. But this message was also declared, attested by eyewitnesses. He says it was attested to us by those who heard, presumably meaning those who heard it declared by the Lord. Eyewitnesses to this gospel. This message wasn't brought down to the Hebrews without authentication. Even God the Father himself testified to the reliability of the gospel message. In verse 4, he says, God also bore witness. How? By signs and wonders and various miracles. And then also by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In, in the book of John that we went through a while ago, Jesus' miracles are always called signs, which means they're pointing to something. They're pointing to something else. They authenticated his message, his ministry. They demonstrated the kingdom of God breaking into reality. We went through the book of Acts not too long ago. Every time the apostles did signs and wonders, it was always accompanied by the preaching of the gospel. The miracles were God's seal of approval, as it were, on the word that was being given. And the Holy Spirit testifies to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel as he gives spiritual gifts according to his will. The proof of the gospel power is seen clearly when God, by the Spirit, changes the heart of a sinner to hate the sin that they once loved and to love the God who they once hated. And then they are filled with the Spirit who endows them with spiritual gifts to be used in the ministry among God's people and to be used as we embark on the Great Commission. God has testified himself of the reality of this gospel that we hold to. He's testified in giving you his spirit, indwelling you with his spirit. Don't drift from what you've heard. Pay closer attention. Stand upon this gospel. 
with all that you are and press back against this slow, agonizing pressure from within and from without that's trying to draw you away, saying other things are better. Other things need your attention more than this needs your attention. Other shiny things are, are going to please you more. Peace in this world is going to please you more. You have to do what you have to do in order to survive. No, Jesus is better than all that. Some of you here are drifting. You hear the gospel often. Familiar with Jesus. Familiar with his word. You may even read your Bible. But, but you're not diligently and passionately paying attention to Jesus' rule over your life. Your walk with him. There's no focused or fixed faith in Christ. No pursuit of him. No desire to grow in Him, no hunger for Him. You're standing still. You think because you're not actively running away or living in open, unrepentant rebellion that you're okay. You know, I go to church when I'm supposed to go to church. I do the things I'm supposed to do. I'm living a good moral life. But you're drifting. Your anchor is up and you can't see it. You're becoming more and more complacent about pursuing Christ following Christ, living for Christ. And it's making you more and more willing to compromise just in daily life. In this passage in Hebrews, the Word of God is standing around you with its back to the ocean and it's screaming, go back! Turn around! Head back to the only place where salvation and the joy of your salvation is found. Go back to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Do you remember, believer, when you came to Christ? Remember when you were saved? And the weight of your sin and guilt just melted off you. And you bore it no longer. You remember the joy of your salvation when you knew you had nothing to offer God. You had no good works. You came to him as a broken sinner, had done nothing but evil all of your life, and you had nothing to say, God, if you'll save me, I'll, I'll do this. I'm a good person. You remember that? All you had was Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected. That's all that you had to be right with God, and it was enough for you. Do you remember? Remember the moment that you knew that God himself came to live within you. And you were ready. You were ready to suffer anything he called you to suffer. You were ready to give up anything he called you to give up. You were ready to go wherever he called you to go. Just to honor him and follow him. Because he is all that you had. And you knew that he is all that you would ever need. You remember your passion and your pursuit of Jesus that, that overtook your whole heart. He hasn't changed. That anchor hasn't moved anywhere. The point on the beach is still there. It's this subtle undercurrent of this world and our flesh that has pulled us away, distracted us by other things. Pay closer attention to the word that you have heard. Don't neglect this great salvation that we have been given. This text is saying to you, no matter where you are, no matter where you have drifted to, there he is. Go back. Return to your first love. 
Know that whatever has caused you to drift, whatever your heart has been chasing, whatever you think you have to do in order to get by in this life, Jesus is better. He's better than everything and all other things combined. Go back to your first love, as it says to the church in Ephesus. Go back to your first love. Jesus is better. He hasn't moved. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We'll see that in Hebrews chapter 13. Trust in Him. Today, if you don't know Christ, and you've never trusted in Him, and God is convicting you that you've never trusted in Jesus. You've got religion down, you've got good moral living down, you've got all those things down, but you've never trusted in Christ. The answer for you is simple. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus. That's it. Don't worry about fixing anything. Don't worry about behaving better. Jesus will take care of that. The Holy Spirit will change you from the inside. The answer is repent of your sin. Trust wholly in Christ. That's it. Believer, you look at your life and you find yourself drifting, not knowing what to do, not knowing where I am, not knowing how to get back to where I need to get back to. The answer for you is exactly the same. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. He is better. He is better. Go back to your first love. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you are... God, you are the... You are our indescribable, indescribable joy. God, the salvation that you have given us in forgiving our sins and presenting us holy and blameless, it, it's beyond description. There are no words to adequately describe the magnitude, the magnificence, the beauty, the wonder of what you have done. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. God, come and deal with our hearts. Do business with each of us. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would call them to yourself. Show them that they've been trying to do good, trying to live morally, trying to live good lives. But it's through Jesus alone that salvation comes. I pray, God, that you would change hearts today and that they would call out upon you they would trust in Jesus, that he died for my sin, that he rose from the grave for my justification, and that through him I am adopted into the family of God, forgiven of all sin. God, I pray that they would call upon you today. I ask that you would save souls in here. And God, for the believers, I pray, God, that you would, that you would draw us back to our anchor. Draw us back to our first love. Give us again the joy of our salvation and the passion of following Christ, knowing that... You are better than all other things. God, we love you. And we call upon you to do a work in our hearts. Only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. You want to trust Jesus today, you trust him. If you want to come, I'll be down front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to share more about this gospel with you. But you must do business with God today in your heart. Will you stand with me?